Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I am Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you will hear our passion for the gospel and people's need to hear it, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Today, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons in our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply send me an email at pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. Continuing our trek through Matthew, um, there's 26, 27, 28, three chapters left, so that'll take through the end of the year. Um, <laughs> um, and you think I'm joking. Anyway, so let's look at Matthew 26, and um, we will read the first um, 19 verses of the chapter. We'll just read the whole part here. We'll encounter the verses again as we go through, and let's read Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth And kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant. When they saw this, they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but do not, you do not always have me. For when she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. He said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray over this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. And God, this morning as we think through all the different preparations we're going to read about today, God, I pray that we would find ourselves in right relationship with you. God, I pray that we would focus our hearts on you. We'd worship and serve you with everything that we have, everything we are. Everything that we do would bring honor and glory to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1,800 miles in 10 days from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California, the Pony Express delivered mail faster than mail had ever been delivered before. <laughs> or since. It, uh, it ran only 18 months. It ran from April 1860 to October 1861, but it was the epitome of preparedness and readiness, being constant on the move. These 1,800 miles, there was a station every 10 to 15 miles. When the rider came running up and got close enough, he would holler so that the station master would have a fresh mount for him ready to get on and continue on. Or if it was going to be a different rider to change the package over to the, the next rider and move on. It, the, they had to be ready. They had to be prepared. There was no sleeping on the job when there was mail to be delivered. Ten weeks after the Pony Express started, Congress authorized the Department of Treasury to, to support financially the creation of a transcontinental telegraph uh, system. And on October 26, 1861, San Francisco was connected with New York City by telegraph and the Pony Express was obsolete at that moment. Didn't need it anymore. Mail actually continued to be delivered until November of, of, of 1861. But in essence, it, it was done. We have the Pony Express as a historical example of readiness, of preparedness, of what it means to always be on the lookout. And that's what Jesus really has been talking about. Not the Pony Express, but being ready. Being on the lookout, constantly looking for his second coming. He's telling the disciples what the end is going to be, and they need to be prepared. Today, in this passage, maybe you even encountered it as we read through it. It was, we were in one scene, then we were on another. Everything's changing. We were with the high priest, then in a house, then with Judas, then with the disciples. We were kind of all over the place. And it's to show us the different scenes of people getting ready for the last Passover that Jesus is going to have. So we're going to see, we're going to join these scenes on preparing for the Passover. Jesus' last Passover that he is going to celebrate until 
really the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not that that's a Passover meal, but it's going to be a, a, a meal. Jesus says, I'm not going to share this again until I share it with you in eternity. So we're going to find ourselves here on Tuesday evening. The last week of Jesus' life, let's, let's call this Tuesday evening. The sun is going down. He is gone. They have walked up the Mount of Olives, and, and we have heard the Olivet Discourse. We've read Matthew's words that say, When Jesus has finished all these words, which is a signal through every, after every major sermon in Matthew, he's used this phrase, you can look at the end of, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount and, and when he did the parables. After every one of these passages, he said when he had finished these words. Here he says when he's finished all these words. The teaching ministry of Jesus has concluded. There's only one other thing he needs to do. He needs to go and he needs to die for our sins on the cross and then be raised up from the dead. All his teaching is going to culminate over the next little bit. Here we find Jesus on Tuesday evening. Sun's going down. They're on their way to their quarters, probably in Bethany. And Jesus tells the disciples about his preparations, really, of what his last Passover is going to look like. So let's look at this passage, see these different scenes, and see what we can learn from them. And first I want to focus on God. Not that God was preparing, but let's, when we think about this last Passover, we need to understand this was God's sovereign plan. This has been God's sovereign plan. The Passover, the crucifixion of Jesus. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, And the Son of God, God in the flesh, says, You know that after two days... Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, which is his reference to himself, is to be handed over for crucifixion. Talking about the handing over is the Jewish people. They couldn't kill anybody. He had to be handed over to the Romans to be killed. Jesus understood this was going to happen because this has been God's sovereign plan throughout all of history. It's not a surprise to God that Jesus was going to be crucified. Jesus' death has been the plan of God since Genesis 3.15 when, when it said that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. The, the crucifixion of Jesus is really pictured when Abraham is standing over his son with a knife ready to kill his son in obedience to what God had told him to do and God provides another sacrifice. The crucifixion of Christ is the thread that, is, that, that holds the Exodus story really together. From the Lamb of God, whose blood saves the people from death and frees them from slavery, to the bronze serpent that was held up in the wilderness to stop the curse. It is the crimson cord that's held out of Rahab's window that saves her family from destruction. The crucifixion of Jesus is why Jonah got swallowed by a fish as the Son of Man is in the ground for three, or like Jonah was swallowed or was in the whale for three days, the Son of Man will be in there for three days. It's why Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. The chastising of our, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. It was always God's plan to bring redemption to his people. It was always God's plan that he would send his son. Our sin would be placed upon him and he would die in our place so that the father could redeem creation to himself. We could be with the, we'd be with the father just like it was in the garden. It was always God's plan. So when Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be crucified, this isn't a surprise. This is God's sovereign plan. Jesus is saying it's happening right now. It is this time. It's the right time for it to happen. Like Romans 6, 5 says that at the right time, God, or at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. It was always God's plan for Jesus to die at the Passover. The Passover is a significant event in history. It's why the Passover really happened so that it would point to God's ultimate salvation. We read in Exodus 12 about the Passover. The people of God had been in slavery for generations, 400 years. They were slaves, people just born. They would be born and they would die with just the surrendering attitude of, I am a slave and I'll always be a slave for 400 years. And then God said, I am going to free my people. And he tells them, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go throughout Egypt and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every home unless you have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home. They were to go and, and, and Jesus said, or sorry, God says in the Old Testament, this is going to be such a significant event that time itself is going to shift for you. This is going to be the first of the year now. It's the month of Nisan. And on the 10th of the month, I want you to pick out a lamb and I want you to examine it and see that it is, it is, uh, perfect and able to be sacrificed. And then on the 14th of the month, I want you to kill this lamb and take its blood and paint your doorposts and the lintel of your home with its blood. And when I see that blood, I'm going to go throughout the land. And when I see the house with the blood on the doorposts, I will pass over that house and you'll be saved from death. Do you think the people went out there with a little pen brush and brushed a little bit of blood on their doorposts? Or do you think they made it obviously we did not want death to come and it was slathered on so that God could see it? They didn't hide this fact. And so Israel was saved and from that they were released to be free. They were to take that lamb and cook it and eat it. They were going to need the calories because they were going to be on the run for a little bit. They were to bake bread that was unleavened because they didn't have time to let the bread rise. So they were to make unleavened bread and they were supposed to have enough to eat for a week or so. And God says, when this happens, you'll be free and all of Israel can leave 
slavery and be my people. Then we go into reread in Leviticus 23, and God says these two events, these, these two things, the Passover and the unleavened bread, we're going to make into celebrations that are recognized year after year after year. That on the 14th day, you are going to take this lamb and sacrifice it, sacrifice it and eat this lamb. And then for the seven days after the Passover, we're going to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you eat nothing but unleavened bread. Well, they might have ate more, but it wasn't. The bread was to be unleavened for seven days. So these eight-day festivals became known. They were so close because it was the Passover. Then the next day was a week of unleavened bread. It became known as one thing. It's called the Passover. Sometimes it's called the, unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it means both. But Jesus recognizes here that it's God's sovereign plan to bring the redemption of humanity just like he brought freedom from death and slavery through the Passover. He says it's two days and at the Passover, this is going to happen. It's the culmination of history. God's redemptive history has been moving toward this for thousands of years, and now it's time. It was time because it was God's plan to offer his Passover lamb to take away the sins of the world. It was time for redemption. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the question is, is your life covered in the blood of the Lamb? Or the doorposts of your house has the blood on it? Trusting in Christ for freedom from death and freedom from slavery of sin. It is only through Jesus we can be saved. Only the blood of Jesus. Have you been set free by the blood of Jesus? If not, that it, you, we accept that by faith today. Do not leave without trusting in Christ only for salvation today. So as we think of this final, prep, this final Passover and all the preparations going to happen, we need to remember this is God's plan and God's plans are not thwarted. This is not a surprise. It's not like God's like, well, we might as well do it this, this one. It happened because this is what God wanted it. It was his sovereign plan. So now we're going to change scenes almost Almost drastically, we're over here with Jesus, and he says, I am going to be handed over. He knows that because it's God's plan, and then we're shifted over to someplace different. We were on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to his disciples. The sun's going down, and now we're moved back into Jerusalem, and we see the priest's extreme loathing of Jesus. Look in verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. We have a different kind of preparation here where we move to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was high priest from, from 12, I'm sorry, from 15 AD. Am I getting this right? I'm sorry. Let me look at my notes. 18 AD to 36 AD. 
He was the son-in-law of a high priest named Annas. Annas served as high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. He was appointed by a Roman governor named Quirinius. You might remember his name from Luke 2 and Jesus' birth story. Rome said, we want this person to be the high priest of Jewish religion. And so Annas became high priest. He had five sons. They all became high priest, approved by Rome, appointed by Rome. And here we have Caiaphas, not the son of Annas, but the son-in-law. This isn't someone who's part of the family, so to speak. This is somebody who's an interloper in Annas's mind. And so he serves as high priest, Caiaphas does, but he really does under the thumb of Annas. In fact, when we read John, if we were reading John and reading about Jesus's last hours, Jesus is brought first, not to Caiaphas, he's brought to Annas. And after Annas talks with him, then he's sent to Caiaphas. Because people said, we really know who's the chief priest around here. Caiaphas might hold the office, but it's Annas who runs the show. So Caiaphas is we're in Caiaphas's house, and I picture the smoky, dark room, right? I know they weren't smoking, but it's, just, it's that idea. It is this, it's this nefarious plotting. They've gathered together. This is the, most of the group of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel. They've gathered together. Probably they've gathered to purify themselves for the upcoming Passover, and while they were there, they started talking about this nuisance, Jesus. What are we going to do with him? This nuisance that they had talked to, and they tried to trap him with semantical traps, and he, would, he, he wouldn't take their bait. Or they tried to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, and he, he just it wouldn't stick to him. This nuisance, this problem who, who the crowds come to him in throngs and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the son of David, the, the Messiah. And this nuisance became a problem and the problem became a real issue. And this issue became a cancer they had to cut out and kill. Jesus was impacting their authority and their influence and they had had it and they said, we've got to capture him and kill him. This is not regular thinking. This is extreme loathing. These people hated Jesus. They hated him because of who he was and what he did. So Annas had been appointed by Rome. Caiaphas appointed by Rome. The, Josephus talks about how this family colluded and, uh, with Rome and was just corruption, all the corruption there. You can see why Jesus railed against these religious authorities. They hated him for it, and they said, we're going to capture him, but we got to by stealth. It, the root word in the Greek has got to do with a bait, and, and uh, like trapping an animal with bait or by cunning, trying to lure him into a place where the trap is caught and Jesus could not get out. But they said, we got to wait. Because in, at the Passover, Jerusalem, all the men who were Jews would come to Jerusalem to worship. 
It was commanded that they do so. Jerusalem would swell to four times its size during the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they just saw him come into town and the people thronged. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He went in the temple, was healing people. And the children were even saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said, if we arrest him now, we will have a total collapse. There'll be a riot. Rome will crack down on us. We'll lose our position and people will get killed. So we'll wait eight days. Our hatred, our loathing, We'll just have to be put on the back burner and simmer for another week. And when all the celebration's over and all the people have gone home and Jerusalem goes back to its sleepy routine, they said, then we'll get them. And we're going to find out here, Judas changes their plans. We, we should not be surprised that those who reject Jesus hate him. It should not surprise us that the world hates Jesus. They might talk about God all day long in a nebulous sense. But you start talking about Jesus and people get riled up. There was an event just last month, mid-September. You guys probably heard about it. Auburn University, they had some sort of Christian worship event. It, I don't really know much about the event, but someone was was preaching, they were singing worship songs, and one guy came forward and said, I want to identify with Jesus Christ through baptism. The venue did not have a baptistry. They didn't have a tub, but there was a lake outside, and they said, well, there's water, much like Philip. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? They took him out there, and when all was said and done, 200 students said, I want to identify with Jesus Christ through baptism. That is, that is remarkable. I don't know anything about it. I don't know what churches are discipling them. I don't know if those students came because they truly were transformed by Jesus or not. I know 200 students said, I want to be identified by Jesus by being baptized by him, or baptized um, and identifying myself with him. And the minute this happened, anti-religious groups said, I'm, we're going to sue Auburn and this is what they said. They're going to sue Auburn because Auburn, this is a quote, created a coercive, coercive environment that excluded those students who don't subscribe to the Christian views. Listen, when we talk specifically about Jesus, when we start naming sin as sin, when we talk, we start saying, we're going to do what we can to take our town for Jesus, encroaching on Satan's territory. We should not be surprised that there's going to be hatred cast upon us. Jesus says, they hated me and they crucified me. What do you think they're going to do to my followers? We see in preparation for this last Last Passover that Jesus would have, we see the priests prepared with their hatred. They said, we are going to kill Jesus. And then we shift to another scene. We see that this is God's, God's ordained plan. This is his sovereign plan to, 
to have Jesus crucified at this Passover, we see the priests are willingly wanting to, to be the ones to do that. And then we move and we read about the woman's sacrificial worship. Let's read this again. Matthew 26, 6 through 3. Now, it says, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Matthew doesn't include a time reference here. He just says now. That's because this is really out of place chronologically speaking. When we read John's version of this, it says it happened six days before the Passover. Which puts it actually before the triumphal entry. That means Matthew placed it here for a reason. He placed it here to emphasize this woman's preparation. And that preparation includes a devoted worship, a sacrificial worship of Jesus. You can see this, it's kind of in a chiastic structure, which is a, a Jewish way of writing things where there is um, the book ends and then it leads to the middle. And here's what I'm talking about. In verses 1 through 2, you see uh, the plan of, of the Passover. And in 17 and 19, the disciples prepare the Passover. In verses 3 through 5, you have the, the priest saying, we want to kill Jesus. And in 14 through 16, you have Judas saying, I will make sure you have a way. And right here in the middle, you have this incredible, beautiful act of sacrificial worship that is really the emphasis of this passage, in my opinion. John tells us this woman's name is Mary, Lazarus, and Martha's sister. Matthew leaves her unnamed because her name isn't important. What's important is Jesus and, what she, and the worship she provided him. We find that, that Jesus has come to the house of Simon the leper. The chief priest went to the high, priest, uh, went to the high priest's house to prepare for the worship by plotting Jesus' death, and Jesus goes to the house of a leper, probably healed, but he goes to this house where this uncleanness had been anyway. And what we find is this woman brings this vial, this alabaster vial of costly perfume. Alabaster is a soft stone imported from Egypt. The vial itself would have been unique and expensive, it looks like marble, and they would seal it up so nothing would spill out. They didn't have screw tops. They would seal it all up however they would, and the only way to get to the perfume would be to break the vial. And so she takes this expensive vial, and she does just that. She breaks it, and this expensive perfume pours out 
over Jesus' head, down his beard. John says it's even on his feet. The room fills with the smell of this perfume. John tells us it's nard. It's a pound of pure nard. That's a Roman pound, which would be closer to 12 ounces than our 16. But it's a lot. It's made from spike nard, which is imported from India. It's a very costly perfume. John tells us, sorry, Mark tells us it's worth 300 denarii. Remember, a denarii was one day's worth of work. So we get to watch Roland do math again. Hold on. Okay. We do my math. <laughs> Colorado minimum wage is $13.65. If someone works eight hours, they get paid $109.20 for one day of work. If that person worked 300 days and got paid for that, that'd be $32,760. What, what Matthew doesn't say by saying it was costly perfume is saying this woman broke open a jar and poured out $33,000 worth of perfume on Jesus, at least. I've not even smelled perfume that expensive. You know what I'm saying? It is crazy. I went online to look at the most expensive perfume right now. And a company by the name of Creed has made something called Le Royale Exclusive. And it's only $1,125 for eight ounces. This perfume, oh, and by the way, it smells like sunlit citrus, soft rose and apple, woody cedar, vetiver, which is grass from Haiti, apparently, and cinnamon. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what that means. Anyway, this woman's perfume that she poured out was far more expensive than that. And then in an incredible act of devotion, John tells us she takes her hair and she gets down on her knees and she wipes Jesus' feet with this oil and anoints his feet with her hair as a rag. This woman loves Jesus. She's not in love with Jesus. She loves him because he saved her. And there was nothing too good for her savior. And she said, what I have is yours. And she broke this flask and this perfume fell down Jesus' head and face. And perhaps people in the room said, I remember that the priests are anointed like this. And may be remembered Psalm 133.2. Like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. And maybe they thought about Jesus being priest. Or maybe they remembered the people in the room that the kings were anointed and said, perhaps he really is the king. Here this woman anoints God's anointed, but she does so. And what Jesus seems to indicate, she does so because she seems to be the only one in the room who believes what he said. He is going to die. And she's preparing his body for, for burial. It's the beginning of the embalming process. 
And she's not going to have time with Jesus after this. She knows he's going to be with the disciples. She knows he's going to be with the temple. There's going to be crowds of people around him. And she's got this once in a lifetime opportunity to show her sacrificial love for her Savior. And so she does it with whatever she's got. And she gives everything to him. She knows he's going to die. And Jesus says she's doing that. She's preparing my body for a funeral. We're going to read, well, we won't read, but in John, you would read in John um, 19 that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they bring a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices to embalm Jesus afterwards. This woman's starting the process. She says, my savior in just a matter of days is going to be buried and I want to worship him while I have the opportunity not knowing what the future would be. There was nothing too good. She held nothing back. Everything she had, her humbleness, her hair, her perfume, her reputation, it didn't matter. She bursts in. She gives everything he has. She gets on her knees. She wipes his feet with her hair and says, I worship you in all of that. And the disciples, are the disciples moved in such a way that they, are, they join in the worship of this woman? No, they're not. They lack the spiritual perception to know what's going on here. It says they become indignant with this woman. It means they are angry. They are fuming against this woman because she dared to waste this money on Jesus. His followers said, what a waste the word waste, they said she's, she's wasted it. That word is, is the same word as, it means ruin or destruction. It's the same word that Jesus says when you walk down the broad path that leads to destruction. That's the same word as waste right here. They say she's ruined it. All this money just destroyed and wasted on Jesus. We could, have, we could have helped the poor. I mean, Jesus just said that if you help the poor, you're ministering to me. At the end of all of the discourse, we just went through that. We should have kept that $33,000 would fed a lot of mouths. So they were indignant. And notice, listen, you read the other gospel writers, they say Judas kind of started this, that Judas was indignant. But look what Matthew says right here. It says in verse 8, but the disciples were indignant. Matthew being one of them himself later says, we were all angry. Every one of us. Because she wasted this in our minds they lacked the spiritual perception to understand the significance of the moment. This was history culminating. Jesus would be hanging from a cross, which was God's ultimate plan from the beginning of time, and they failed to get it. And Jesus told them, look, quit bothering her. She's done nothing wrong. In fact, what he says is, she has done something beautiful. The word good deed is actually, she's done something beautiful here. This is a beautiful act of worship. So quit bugging her about it. He says, look, you're always going to have the poor. There's always going to be someone to help. There's always going to be those who need help from you. And you've got plenty of time to do it. 
But this is a special time. Right here, right now, this act needed to be done. It was an act of worship. This is the central moment in history, the culmination of God's redemptive plan. What she did was a beautiful act of worship. And then he says, I tell you the truth. Remember, when he says, I tell you the truth, he's saying whatever follows is very important. It's very significant. Remember what he's going to say. He says, I tell you the truth. Whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, people are going to remember what this woman did. What this woman did will be remembered throughout history. And that is this. When we tell the gospel, we don't say you got to include the story about the woman anointing. But what we say is the gospel of Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And this woman made a declaration, my Savior is going to die. He's going to be in a tomb. I am beginning the balming process. And that declaration of her Savior dying is the gospel, at least part of it, the first part of it. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he arose again declared he was God, to declare he was God in the flesh and to show that we no longer are slave to death. Charles Spurgeon said this about this beautiful act of the devotion from this woman. He said she probably did not know all that her action meant when she anointed her Lord for his burial. The consequences of the simplest action done for Christ may be much greater than we think. She thus showed there was at least one heart in the world that thought nothing was too good for her Lord and that the, very, uh, that the best of the very best ought to be given to him. Is there anything you have that's too good for the Lord? Is there anything in your life that you are holding back from him because it's yours and not the Lord's? Do you give the first of your time to him or does he get the leftovers? Does he get the first of your, your money or does he get whatever's left over from bills? Is there anything in your life you're holding back from Jesus? Are you afraid to give him every part of who you are? See, this woman showed us what real devotion to Jesus looks like. And it is humbling and it is, one might say, reckless and it is glorious. It's beautiful. We see how this woman prepared. The priest did so through evil loathing. This woman did through sacrificial worship. We move to another scene. It's almost, it's almost painful because we enjoy maybe sitting there and, and we kind of get wrapped up in this beautiful act of worship and then we're, we're drastically moved to the next scene. And we read about the traitor's evil pact. Look in verse 14 and 16. And we read about the traitor's evil pact. Then one of the 12, you could hear the ominous music playing, right? You can hear hearts breaking. One of the 12, the one who was named Judas Iscariot. We know Judas's name. We know his name as a traitor throughout all of history. The first readers of Matthew, their jaws dropped open. Judas, he went to the chief priests and said, what? 
Are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Matthew has not mentioned Judas since we were introduced to him in Matthew 10, where he listed all the disciples. Iscariot is not his last name. It means from Kerioth, which is a place in Judea, either a region or a, a city in Judea. That is to say, all the other disciples were up in Galilee, and Judas was one that was down in the right part of the country, the religious part of the country. He was from Jerusalem area, somewhere in Judea. We read from John that he was not concerned about the poor. In fact, we find out John says he's a thief. He would pilfer from the treasury. And this $33,000 plus, whatever it was, that was just wasted, he said, I don't have access to this. He was indignant because he wanted what was given to Jesus. In his mind, he was saying, that's mine. And she wasted it, and I don't have access to it anymore. And I'm going to get some of mine back. And so he didn't bump into the priests accidentally. The priests didn't come to him. They weren't like in the temple courtyard and have a happenstance meeting. Judas set out to find them. And there's people throughout history trying to figure out why he did this. There's people who give all kinds of excuses and all kinds of things. And Matthew tells us and John tells us the reason he did this was greed. He wanted money more than Jesus. It was greed that propelled one of Jesus' closest disciples, someone who had followed him for three years, that knew him intimately. It was greed who said that, that propelled him to go and betray him. There may be more to that, but there's not less to it, right? It's greed. See, initiated contact and said, how much will you give me to betray him? They count out 30 pieces of silver. Some think that's about um, 120 denarii, about half, a little bit less than half of what that perfume was. But if it was half, that's probably still $13,000. It was just something. I mean, again, if we're using our modern day equivalent, I, we're just trying to get something in our mind around these biblical money. And so, from that moment, he began looking. The, 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 the Greek phrase is that he was continually looking, always looking. Trying to find a place where Jesus was alone, where they could come and get him without stirring up a riot. Jesus, for Judas, from this point on, Judas was looking for a way to capture Jesus. He was now working with the enemy. Judas, who was in the boat when Jesus walked on water, who handed out fish and bread when Jesus fed 5,000 people. Judas saw lame people walk. He saw the deaf hear. He saw the blind receive their sight. He was there when Jesus calls out Lazarus' name and Lazarus comes out of the grave. Judas was there, yet he loved money more than his Savior. And he rejected Jesus because he wanted more. Judas prepared for the Passover with an evil pact to help these chief priests accomplish their goal. We'll read more about that in the upcoming, upcoming sessions. 
And I just simply say, Lord, let us be more like the devoted women than the treacherous Judas. Amen. We want to be, we want to be people who are giving our all to Jesus, not stealing what we can from him and betraying him. The final preparation we see here is found in 17 and 18. Let's read it real quick. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare you to eat the pa- want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, My teacher says, My time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared for the Passover. It's a day of preparation. We've probably turned to Thursday now. It's probably Thursday. They are going to go and take the lamb with thousands of other people, and they're going to kill thousands of lambs. They're going to be roasted. Jerusalem probably smelled like a giant barbecue because they roasted these, these lambs for the Passover meal. Blood was everywhere at the temple. They would slaughter a lamb and throw it on blood on the altar and go to the next one. It, was, it, it, it would have been amazing to see. While the men took the lamb to get that done, the women were going through the house, cleaning out, getting all the leaven out of the house. They were making unleavened bread. They were preparing the bitter herbs. And by sundown on Thursday, they would have this meal. Because sundown on Thursday was actually the beginning of Friday, and that's when the Passover was. And so they're preparing everything, and, they, and there was, again, people all over had come in. There wasn't any rooms, and they're like, Jesus, where are we going to have Passover in Jerusalem? And he says, go into town, find this dude, and tell him we're going to go eat at your house, me and my 12 disciples, Right? How'd you like that? Some stranger comes up to you and says, oh, by the way, 13 guys are coming to your house for dinner. Just want to let you know that. But see, when Jesus asks us to do things for him, sometimes it looks crazy. Sometimes it looks like it's going to fail, but Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen here. He says, go and find this guy. Mark talks about a bigger story, and you can go and read Mark's details of this. But he's simply saying, here's what they say. Jesus said, go do this radical thing. Go tell this guy we're going to have it. And they did. They did what Jesus asked. And so we see their dutiful their dutiful obedience, their dutiful preparation. They did what they, Jesus asked them to. That is the job of a disciple, to simply do what Jesus says to do. We're going to find in the coming weeks that Jesus is the final and last Passover lamb. It's through his blood that people are freed from death, freed from slavery. But what we have here is everything's ready now for Jesus' last Passover. We're going to start then the next, in the next passage, really the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. From this point, where we start next week in verse 26, in 24 hours, Jesus will be in a grave. And Matthew shows us how everyone prepared to make redemptive history happen in essence we see the same in the world today i'm almost done hang with me 
You see the same in the world today. We have people who have extreme hatred for Jesus. They reject him and they hate him and they'll hate us for it. We have those who look like they're followers of Christ, say they're followers of Christ and they're betrayers of him. When the push comes to shove, they will betray him. And I pray that in us, I pray that in us individually and as a church, we would be those who have beautiful sacrificial worship and dutiful obedience to our Savior. I pray that would describe us. I'm going to have you bow your heads. I appreciate your patience and just bear with us as we go through a time of response. If you were to be categorized with these people, where would you be today? Are you a betrayer? Someone pretending to be a follower of Christ, but really rejecting him? Are you a sacrificial worshiper? Are you an obedient disciple? Heavenly Father, I come to you and ask that you would work among us. God, what we see in this passage is your hand directing every bit of redemption. I thank you for that. I'm sorry Jesus had to die, and I'm so thankful that you had him die in my place. And that each of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray, and you have placed our iniquity upon him, pierced through for our transgressions in order to bring us back to you. God, if there's someone here today who needs that in their life, I pray that you would work in their life today, draw them to you for them to make this decision. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.